Judges chapter 14 tonight, as we continue through the book of Judges, and right now we're in about a four-week period where we're looking specifically at the life of Samson. When you come to Judges chapter 14, it's pretty much like the rest of the book of Judges. It's, it's not a lot of good stuff. It's pretty dark. And yet, as we have said, one of the encouraging things about studying the book of Judges is it reminds us that even in the darkest days of Israel's history, God was there, He was at work, He was not letting go of His people. In fact, in Judges chapter 14, you see this very clearly that uh, God in His Word is portraying a life, Samson, that is spiraling out of control and spiraling downward. You get that very clearly when like you go up to chapter uh, 14 verse 1 and it says Samson went down to Timnah. Certainly he's talking about geographically there, but the implication throughout the chapter as you keep seeing this phrase went down is that Samson isn't just geographically going down, he is spiritually spiraling downward. You see this again in verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah. Verse 7, Samson continued on down to Timnah. And then finally in verse 19, he went even further down to Ashkelon. It is a picture of a man who is spiraling downward. And even in that, God is at work. God is working in Samson's life. He's working with Samson. He's working through Samson. And he's trying to reach out to Samson and all those around at this time saying, your life doesn't have to keep spiraling downward. At at, at any time, God is the God that can turn that spiral around and get us going back up again in our lives. And maybe many of you in this room could give testimony to the fact that there was a time where you were like Samson. Your life was spiraling out of control and spiraling downward. And just like we just sang, the grace of God just was magnificently portrayed in your life. And God began to do a work and your life began to turn around like never before. That's what God's all about. He's in the business of taking lives that are spiraling out of control and spiraling downward and inserting himself into those lives when he's invited and transforming those lives and just seeing so much difference. So that's what chapter 14 is all about. A man whose life is spiraling downward. And you begin to see why a little bit in the first few verses of chapter 14. Manoah and his wife were certainly upset. Samson was now a grown young man and They were now having another go-around with their child, this strong-willed child. He had been to Timnah, and he saw a girl. And he was determined. His father must arrange for their marriage. That's the way they did it back in those days. Mom and dad were shattered. They had lived in hope of his birth, and now this. You can imagine the scene. It's been played out in homes over the centuries. She's a Philistine, Manoah would plead. Surely the angel of the Lord hadn't had this in mind. Get her as my wife, Samson persisted. Father and mother explode. Isn't there any girl in all Israel who could please you? That you have to go off to Philistia to find a wife? Samson, that girl is trouble. 
Samson looks Manoah in the eye. His words come out deliberately through clenched teeth. Get her for me. His reason, verse 3, for she is the right one, or literally, she is right in my eyes. Grief and misery are in that home that evening. A couple things before we move on. One, you get the real sense here that the only reason Samson wants to get together with this girl and marry her is strictly, only, because of her physical, external appearance. In fact, we're not even told that Samson has had any conversation with her until you get to even verse 7 when he goes back to Timnah and finally talks to her. He doesn't know her heart. He, he doesn't know what she's all about. It was strictly, wow, she's a knockout. Now, please hear my heart and hear what God in the Bible says. There's nothing wrong with being physically attracted to someone. That, that's how God made us. But I think what we're seeing here is one of the weaknesses in Samson's character is that it didn't go any further or deeper than that. It was only on the externals that he was wanting to have a relationship with this girl. It had nothing to do with anything else. And if that's the only reason we base our relationships with other people on are the externals and not their heart and all of that, then we're going to find ourselves in trouble throughout our lives. And Samson's going to find that pain as well. You'll also notice in verse 3 that Samson says, she's right in my eyes. What about what God thinks? What about what his parents thought? He had total disregard. Why? Because he was living in the days of the judges. And in the days of the judges, the Bible says pretty much everybody did what was right in their own eyes. In fact, keep your finger there in Judges chapter 14 and just go over to Judges chapter 17. Just a few chapters over. And here's a verse that basically characterizes the entire age of Israel at that point. Judges 17 verse 6. You want a verse that summarizes the the backdrop, the spiritual bankruptcy of the nation at this time? Here it is. Judges 17 6. In those days Israel had no king. Each man did what he considered to be right in his own eyes. Nobody cared about what God thought. Nobody cared to pursue what God's will was and, and what pleased God. It was just what pleases me. And that's the state spiritually that Israel finds themselves in at this point. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. That's why Jesus said to those who would follow him, if anyone wants to follow me and be my disciple, you and I have to be willing to take up our cross daily and follow him and basically die to self. We need to let God be on the throne of our lives rather than us being on the throne and running the show. But that wasn't the case in the days of the judges. That's why there were so many problems in that day. Because they didn't want a king. 
They didn't want God telling them what to do. They just wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. It's a sad time in Israel's history, and even Samson is getting caught up in it. But I want you to notice back in chapter 14, verse 4. This to me is a a real encouraging truth in the midst of all the grief and misery that's in that home that night. And that is that we get a little bit of an insight from God into this. His father, Samson's father and mother, did not realize this was the Lord's doing because he was looking for an opportunity to stir up trouble with the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines were ruling Israel. Now this verse does not mean that they were wrong as parents to object to Samson's desires and action. Nor does it mean that Samson's desires were virtuous or that his stubbornness or bullheadedness was right. But what it does mean is that neither Samson's foolishness nor his stubbornness was going to prevent God from accomplishing his design and purposes in this situation. And his design at this time in Israel's history, notice verse 4, was to stir up his people against the Philistines. We're going to talk more about that later. See, every once in a while, God needs to do something to stir his people up. We get comfortable. We get complacent. God never intended for his people to be ruled by someone else. God never intended for his people to be in in servitude to somebody else. God, even in the Old Testament, as we even sang tonight, came to set his people free. And God wants his people to be free. But as we saw last week, they had gotten comfortable in letting the Philistines rule over them. And God wanted to use Samson basically as an instrument to shake and stir up his people and to try to get them to realize this isn't what God had for you. You don't have to let these people rule over you. If they're ruling over you and they're dominating you and all of this, it's because you're allowing them to, not because God wanted this to be this way. And so God is going to use Samson to begin to stir up the Israelites and the Philistines, to get somebody moving. Because as of now, everybody's just sort of satisfied with the status quo and to keep things the way they are. Now the thing I like about this truth in verse 4 of Judges 14 is this. This holds out hope for God's people. Why? Because it reminds us that even when we or someone else is going even against God, that God in His greatness can take a situation where people are going wrong and He can still, as a great God, bring something good out of it. What we don't know, just like Samson's mom and dad did not realize, may yet prove to be our deepest comfort in life. See, because we can always lie our, our head on the pillow at night, lay our head on the pillow at night knowing that even when someone we dearly love is just going off against God and, and all of that, that God can even use their disobedience and bring something good out of it. When God isn't permitted to rule in people's lives, 
He can overrule. That's what Romans 8.28 really teaches from the book of Romans, that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. It's not that everything is good. But it's that we serve a God and know a God that can even take tragedy and crisis and yuck and all of that and disobedience. And, and if we allow him to work, he can bring something good out of all those bad things. Samson's parents didn't realize that. See, that's part of, again, the, the, the spiritual backdrop you have in the book of Judges. Most of these people just, they don't have a close relationship with God. They're not used to walking with God. And so the truths that that even we live by and cling to and the promises that we share with one another today, they were sort of clueless to. Not because they had to be. It was their own choice to walk away from God. But it, it just shows how a close relationship with God can give us insight And give us hope, even in the midst of some pretty dark days. And so that's one of the first things we see here in Judges chapter 14. Then we pick it up in Judges chapter 14, verse 5. And we see a sign of God's strength. Because the Bible says, as Samson went back down to Timnah, he approached the vineyards of Timnah, and he saw a roaring young lion attacking him. And the Lord's Spirit empowered him, and he tore the lion in two with his bare hands as easily as one would tear a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Here we see God's protection of his servant. For Samson's life was obviously endangered. And it showed him, Samson, that God would enable him to overpower a lion and will enable him to overpower the Philistines. We must not ignore such previews in our lives. David argued that if God made him able to wipe out the lions and the bears that attacked Jesse, his father's sheep, he would also give him the guts and skill to knock off the King Kong of the Philistines, whose name was Goliath. Mark suggests in his gospel that if the disciples had understood the feeding of the 5,000, they would not have been astounded at the presence of Jesus on the lake. You see... God many times is is trying to, you know, get through to us and, and he's working in our lives and he's showing us something here by way of his power and his provision. And it's not just for now. It's to remind us down the road that the same God that that brought me through this and took care of me here and provided for me here is the same God that's going to do it down the road. And that's what God is trying to show Samson here. Samson, I've got a special mission for you. I want you to begin to deliver my people from the Philistines. And so he was trying to encourage Samson here by empowering him to overcome this lion that if God can do this through me, then maybe God can do that through me. And God does the same thing in our lives as well. He will, by some smaller episode of deliverance or provision, show you and I how adequate He is so that you and I will be encouraged to rely on Him in upcoming and possibly more demanding circumstances. 
God was showing Samson too that Samson, by me, you have adequate power to live in victory even over your passions. These passions that are eventually going to bring defeat into Samson's life. But God was showing him, you don't need to go down that path of defeat. You don't need to keep spiraling downward. I can empower you to overcome whatever lion comes your way. In fact, isn't it very interesting that Peter picks up on this idea of the lion when in 1 Peter 5, he tells us as Christians, let's always be alert because our adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, is walking about at all times seeking whom he may devour. Very graphic word too, that word devour in the original Greek language. It literally means to swallow up or to drink in. It is a picture of these animals, whether they be a huge snake or something, that just swallows its prey whole and digests it. That's what Satan wants to do to Christians. But the Bible goes on to say in the next verse, Resist him, firm in your faith. See, we're not supposed to run from our lion. We're supposed to resist him. And how do we resist him? Keep trusting and believing in the promises of God. It's the same strategy that Jesus had when he was tempted by the devil himself. How did he combat the temptation of the devil in his life? He used the word of God. That's what he used. He said, I'm going to keep trusting my heavenly father. You are trying to get me to doubt my heavenly Father, and His love, and His care, and His plan, and His provision. I'm going to resist you, devil, firm in my faith. And we see victory over our lions the same way. In fact, one of the things that this passage teaches us is that the believer's life will have its conflicts. And isn't it interesting that when Samson is approached by this lion, he is all alone and unarmed. They tell us, because I've never had a confrontation with the lion, and I hope I never do. But they tell us that that's the way lions, for the most part, hunt their prey. That they don't expend any more energy, even though they're the king of the beast or the king of the jungle, than they have to. So they will lie in wait. They'll be very patient. And they will watch flocks of different animals go by, and they will wait to see an animal in that pack that is injured, that is sick, that is lagging behind, and they will try to isolate that one individual that's, that's dragging behind the others and can't keep up from the rest of the pack. That's the way the lion operates. Guess what? That's the same strategy the devil has in our lives. He wants to try to isolate you and I from God, from our friends, from our church family and he wants to try to put us in a position where we think we are all alone and we were we are fighting this battle all by ourselves and that then we feel like just like i'm unarmed here's a lion coming at me i don't even have a spear i don't have a sword i don't have anything to fight this lion samson had everything he needed and you and i have the same thing notice the only thing samson needed to take down this lion was the power of god's spirit verse six God again was showing him, Samson, you don't need a spear. You don't need a shield. You don't need a sword. 
You have the sword of the Spirit of God. You have the Spirit empowering you to tear this lion. And God wants to remind those of us of that as well. We may not have a lion attacking us, literally, physically. But probably all of us in this room have been attacked by some form of a spiritual lion this past week. And God wants to remind all of us that we have all the power we need through the Spirit of God to tear that lion. And not to allow that lion to overtake us. Notice also though, not only does the believer's life have its conflicts, but it has its sweets. Verse 7. Samson continued on down to Timnah and spoke to the girl. In his opinion, she was just the right one. Sometime later, he went back to marry her and he turned aside to see the lion's remains. We get the implication that it was the same lion that he tore to pieces up in verse 6. And he saw a swarm of bees in the lion's carcass as well as some honey. He scooped it up with his hands and ate it as he walked along. And when he returned to his father and mother, he offered them some and they ate it. But he did not tell them he had scooped the honey out of the lion's carcass. Not only does the believer's life have its conflicts, but the believer's life has its sweets. We are not always killing lions. We are sometimes eating honey. And we need to just focus on that. You know, the Bible says in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we've got to... Yeah, there's times where we're going to be fighting lions, but God isn't going to permit those lions to fight us all the time. Sometimes God's going to give us that honey, and He wants us to enjoy the honey. Even sometimes the honey that comes out of a battle with a lion, as we see here in the book of Judges, chapter 14. And notice that I believe that the believer's life also leads us to share those sweets with others, which is what Samson did with his mom and his dad. And notice to tell them about the sweets wasn't enough. He had to show them. God wants us to share those joys, those sweets with others. And hopefully it is in living a life and not just sharing with our mouths, but but literally demonstrating the joy of the Lord that people will be drawn and attracted. They're going to want some of that sweet as well. I mean, physically we do this, right? Some of you stop by our offices sometime. Our dear receptionist, Jan, man, she keeps us stocked up on chocolate all the time over there. But I'm telling you what, those dishes of chocolate usually don't last through the day. I mean, it's like we're attracted to the sweet, (laughs) whether it's because of the taste or we just want the sugar to keep us going or something, but we like that. God wants us to live in that way as well. But notice also the humility in sharing the sweetness, because he didn't tell even his own parents, well, you know, I overcame this lion and whatever. Why? Because He didn't overcome the lion anyway in his own power and strength. It was because the Lord empowered him to overcome the lion. But in spite of this great now sort of parenthesis in chapter 14 about the strength that Samson had through God and through his spirit and what Samson could do, immediately we come to verse 10 where we begin to see the sort of the shadow that begins to fall ever so slightly over the Samson stories. 
we see the weakness of God's servant beginning to really come to the fore here. Here is a hint, God says, of what is to come. It's so sad because we see Samson's strength in verses 5 through 9, and then we are immediately faced with his weakness in verses 10 through 18. It reminds us many times, even in our own lives, we, we can experience some great victory, some great thing in our lives spiritually, and then we've got to be careful because soon after that, man, we can take a giant slide down real quick. Sometimes we are most vulnerable after our victories. That may be the case with Samson here as well. Because notice in verse 10, Samson's father accompanied him to Timnah for the marriage. Samson hosted a party there for this was customary for bridegrooms to do. And when the Philistines saw he had no attendants, they gave him 30 groomsmen who kept him company. Now what stood out to me as I read those verses was maybe one of the reasons why Samson was weak is because he was all alone. I mean, isn't it sad in a a way that this guy that could have been this great hero for God and that God gave all this supernatural strength to when the Spirit empowered him and everything... And yet, isn't it sad the day he gets married, he doesn't have one friend from his own nation of Israel that's willing to go down with him and stand with him at his own wedding? That he has to hire Philistines, their enemy? Well, if you give us enough money, we'll come and we'll stand in for your wedding and give you some people to throw a party with. How sad. It didn't have to be that way. And obviously, the Bible doesn't tell us, well, you know, was, was... him not having hardly any friends or no friends, was that you know, his fault? Was that you know, We don't know, but it's just sad to see that he didn't even have one other person in his life besides his own father that was willing to go down and stand with him at one of the most important days of his life. Again, it reminds us about the importance of community and having a few friends in our lives that we can go through life with. And, and obviously God brings different people into our lives in different seasons of our lives. But as I've shared with people over the years, every Christian, I believe, needs a Paul in your life at all times. It doesn't have to be the same person throughout your life, but every Christian needs a Paul, somebody who's building into you spiritually. Every Christian needs a Barnabas, somebody that you consider to be sort of a spiritual equal, that you are walking with and through life together. And then every Christian to balance that out needs a Timothy in their life. Somebody that you're encouraging and that you're building into as well. Sad to say, Samson, it doesn't look like, had a Paul, a Barnabas, or a Timothy. He had no one. God wants us to learn how to develop good friendships. Godly friendships. Where those friendships are like as Proverbs says, iron that sharpens iron. And that we come together and we make each other better. That we challenge each other and that we help each other to achieve what we would not achieve on our own. Samson did not have that in his life. And it's really, really sad. And then look at verse 12. Samson said to them, and he's the original Riddler, not the one on the Batman show. I will give you a riddle. And literally in the Hebrew, it's riddle me this. Well, that's what the Riddler used to say. 
If you really can solve it during the seven days the party lasts, I will give you 30 linen robes and 30 sets of clothes. But if you cannot solve it, you will give me 30 linen robes and 30 sets of clothes. They said to him, let's hear your riddle. He said to them, out of a one who eats came something to eat. Out of a strong one came something sweet. They could not solve the riddle for three days. So at last, as you begin to keep reading, in desperation, they confront Samson's wife. They say things like, is your daddy's fire insurance paid up? Do you want us to make things hot for you? Have you invited us here to clean out our bank accounts? Then be your old seductive self and worm that riddle out of your husband or else. A little pressure on the bride. Suddenly, Samson's wife finds herself caught in a no-win wedding celebration. She must cry now, or she will really cry later. So notice in verse 16, the waterworks and the you-don't-love-me act begins. Samson's bride cried on his shoulder and said, You must hate me. You don't love me. You told the young men a riddle, but you've not told me the solution. He said to her, look, I've not even told my father or mother. Do you really expect me to tell you? She cries on his shoulder until the party was almost over. And finally, on the seventh day, don't miss this. He told, so then she told. And many of us who've heard Samson's whole story before cannot help seeing the present episode as a foreshadowing of Samson's telling a far more sacred secret to Delilah in chapter 16. The occasion of his failure is the same in both cases. In fact, it is the same Hebrew word used in chapter 14, verse 17. And if you look over in chapter 16, verse 16, when Delilah does the same thing, she pressured him, or in my translation, she nagged him so much that finally he gave in. Now, the point should not be lost on any of God's servants. Awareness of our weaknesses is the beginning of safety. And weakness, biblically, may not be the way we think, because biblical weakness is simply learning to totally rely on God. That's why Paul could say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, when I'm weak, I'm really strong, because... When I'm not relying on self or on who I am or what I can do or my own strength or my own wisdom and my own intellect and I'm totally relying on God, then he says to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if I go through life thinking I'm pretty strong and I can do this on my own and and I don't need God and I don't need His strength and I don't need His wisdom and I can figure this out myself, then I'm really weak biblically. From God's perspective. And Samson didn't ever face up to how weak he was. You know, he could overcome lions. He could overcome these giant Philistines. But he couldn't overcome these women in his life. And so notice. The Bible says on the seventh day, verse 18, before the sunset, the men of the city said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, if you had not plowed with my, notice what he calls his wife, my heifer, 
you would not have solved my riddle. Now, gals, hold it, hold it, <laughs> hold it. First of all, I'm not going to try to defend Samson, okay? I think we all know from the beginning of the chapter the portrait I tried to paint of Samson, that he really is one of these guys that, you know, it, it, was, it was about physical appearance. So why then call his wife a heifer? Here's why. It's not what you think, okay? I'm not saying Samson was this all-American spiritual guy, because he wasn't. But here's the language that he's using for this point. He's basically saying, if you hadn't broken the rules, you wouldn't have found out the answer. You see, in those days, and I realize this is where we need to study the Bible and understand the culture that it comes from. The reason why he talks about plowing with the heifer is, you didn't plow with the heifer. That, if you plowed with the heifer, that was breaking the rules. That's not what was normally done. You plowed with oxen. So when he says, you plowed with my heifer, he's simply using a cultural language there to say, you broke the rules of what is normally acceptable. You should not have pressured my wife. Now, the thing is, we could even say, well, because they broke the rules and they pressured his wife and they did it wrong that Samson had all justification to basically say, the bet's off. For whatever reason, he didn't. But that's what he meant by, you plowed with my heifer. No, it wasn't the best choice of words, but then I think we all are seeing here that Samson maybe isn't, you know, a guy that we would want our daughters to date anyway. In fact, before leaving this passage tonight, Let's make no mistake about it that one of the things the Bible teaches us in the New Testament in places like Romans 15 verse 4 is that one of the reasons why God gives us the Old Testament stories is because we truly can learn and be instructed from the Old Testament. Mainly not to make the same mistakes that they did in the Old Testament. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we have these stories in the Old Testament. God is saying to us who are alive thousands of years after this, don't make the same mistakes that they did. Learn from them. Let me share with you seven mistakes that I see Samson made in this chapter alone. First of all, back up to chapter 14, verse 1, he went to the wrong place. He went to the wrong place. You know where we get ourselves in trouble sometimes? When we're not in the place we should be. Take David, for instance. The Bible says that David would have never been hooked up with Bathsheba had he went off to war like he was supposed to as the king of Israel. Instead, he stayed behind, went up on his rooftop, and then saw this naked lady bathing there that he would have never seen had he been at the place he should have been. So the Bible tells us all along that one of the, the principles we need to make sure that we live by, make sure we're at the places we should be, because if we're at the wrong places and find ourselves in wrong places, it's probably going to negatively affect our life. Second thing, verses 2 and 3, he was looking for the wrong thing. He was looking for the wrong thing. He wasn't looking for some godly Jehovah-worshipping gal that... They could spiritually build a home that worshipped God and whatever. He was just looking for a girl that was right in his eyes. He was looking for the wrong thing. When you and I in life start looking for the wrong things to satisfy, to fulfill our lives, we're going to end up making some of the same mistakes that Samson did. Third, verse 3, he rejected godly counsel. The Bible says, 
There is wisdom in the multitude of counselors. When you and I want to make a decision, and if we don't know the clear answer from the Bible, or we're, we're, we need to go to some people that we believe are walking with God, and we need to ask them their counsel. His mom and dad were pleading with him, please don't go to Philistia. Don't go to Timnah. And I think they were giving him godly counsel, but he did not listen. He rejected it. Number four, he continued a wrong relationship, verse 7. Notice, because the Bible says in verse, he continued on down. It's like, man, there was probably a moment there where he could have said, you know what, maybe this isn't the best relationship. Maybe this relationship is going to take me further away from God than closer to God. Listen, there's always moments in our lives when we're in relationships. And we can either terminate those relationships or put up boundaries or something. Or we can continue in those relationships that only cause us heartache, pain, abuse, drag us further away from God. And God does not, is not honored by those kind of relationships. Be careful that you and I, that the relationships we are in are God-honoring And if we are in those relationships, we are in them because they are bringing us closer to who God created us to be. Number five, he didn't apply spiritual lessons, verses five through nine. God gave him the lesson of being able to overcome the lion, but he never was able to equate it. The light bulb never went on with Samson that, you know, the power that God gave me to do that, you know, he could give me to help me to overcome the passions and the lusts and the things that are dragging me away. Remember, if you know the story of Samson, from the very beginning, he was to take this vow, this Nazarite vow. He was to live on a higher plane morally than even the rest of Israel. He was always playing fast and loose with the commands and principles of God. He was one of those people that either wanted to go right up to the edge all the time or obviously cross the edge all the time. You and I will be better served in our lives whenever we learn the lessons that God is teaching us in this situation and then we can apply it in other situations in our life so that we don't make those same mistakes and keep spiraling downward in our lives. Number six. He avoided dealing with the real issues in his life. Verses 10 through 17. He had real issues. But he never was willing to face the weaknesses that he had. Like us, many times he maybe denied them, pretended like they didn't think, well, it's not going to be that big of a deal. It's not going to cause a bunch of harm in my life. I can manage this and all of that. And then number seven, he wouldn't accept responsibility for his actions. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at verse 19, the Bible says that he got very angry at the end of verse 19 and went back home. In my opinion, the only person that Samson should have been upset with was not the Philistines, not his wife, not his parents. He should have taken a look at the mirror and saw the mistakes that he made and owned up to them and took responsibility for them and grew from them. He was the one who went to Philistia in the first place. He's the one who picked out the girl. 
He's the one who decided to marry her. He's the one who thought up the riddle. He's the one who made the bet. He's the one who named the price. He's the only one who knew the secret. He was the one who gave the secret away. Can I just tell you, as a pastor and counselor for 25 years, there's lots of Christians that I have talked to and counseled with that would have gotten a lot further along in life if they would have just humbled themselves and said, I need to take responsibility for this. I'm wrong. I own it. It's me. Now, God, you help me move past it. Instead of trying to point the finger at everybody else in their life and shifting the blame and and not seeing themselves, it's always somebody else's fault. Just dealt with this this past week where a gentleman that I was dealing with didn't want to hear what I was telling him and got pretty nasty. And basically, it goes back to the lesson of Samson. Wants to always make it somebody else's fault. Never willing to deal with the issues in my life and take responsibility for my actions. Well, with all of that said, and we're going to talk more about this next week and the week after as we wrap up the life of Samson. Many Christians then, especially in the New Testament, just sort of scratch their head and go, then why did God choose this guy? Why is Samson a servant of God? I don't get this. I mean, he's just not somebody that we would like put up there as a a role model. You're absolutely right. But remember something. Remember something in the context of what's going on here. God never called Samson to be a pastor, a missionary, a minister. He wouldn't have made it. God basically wanted Samson to fulfill one role in his program. And that was to begin to get God's people to see that the grip that the Philistines had on them could begin to be loosened. That was it. Samson wasn't this great moral role model. Samson was a fighter. And the one thing that Samson did right out of all the stuff that he didn't do right was he was willing to fight the Philistines. He was willing to stand up to them and say, I don't think God's people should be under you. And I'm willing to fight you for it. That's why God chose Samson. And here's a lesson then we can learn from that. If Samson's role was to loosen the grip the Philistines had over Israel, I think the question that I came to for myself at the end of reading and studying chapter 14 was this. Who or what has a grip on my life right now that God wants to be loosened? Is there someone in my life that is negatively having a grip on me? Is there something in my life that has a grip on me and and I, I can't seem to to loosen the grip that it has on my life, then guess what? The story of Samson will instruct you and encourage you. Because what we do learn from Samson is this. God's Spirit can help us to overpower those lions that have a grip in our life. In fact, God reminded me, Jeff, if I have a grip on you, then you can let go of everything else. I just have to come to a point in my life where I acknowledge and recognize as a child of God, God, you do have a hold of me. You have a grip on me 
Therefore, I can let everyone and everything else in my life go. By your power, but I can let it go. If God has a grip on me. That's why God raised up Samson. Not because he was this great spiritual example. Not because he was some great moral leader. He wasn't a spiritual leader, but he was a fighter. And he was willing to be used by God to loosen the grip that the Philistines had on the Israelites. Now think about this even as far as how we can practically apply this to even our lives. This coming week. Would God want you to be a Samson in the right way in somebody else's life? Would God maybe be using you to come alongside of somebody else and to maybe even get them to see with hope for the very first time that that thing or that person that's got a grip on you, if you just turn that over to God, maybe God wants to use you in their life to get them to begin to see that whatever's got a grip on their life can be let go with God. That you can be the encouragement. That maybe you and I can even be part of that person's life because we had something in our life that had a grip on us. And we know what God's power can do to loosen that grip. You all know my story. Many of you. The struggle that I had for years with anxiety and panic attacks and how they paralyzed my life and ruled my life. Until I had the Lord bring some very strategic truth and people into my life that began to get me to see, Jeff, that doesn't have to have that grip on your life that it does. If I have a grip on you, you can let that go. And God began that day to loosen the grip that that destructive behavior had on my life. Folks, if God can do it with me, He can do it with you. He can do it with others. Maybe God wants you to step into somebody's life because you and I all know of people in our circle that something in their life has got them by the throat. They're spiraling downward like Samson. And they need the truth of God to set them free. And they need somebody who cares enough about them to come into their life and at least point them to say, you know, that doesn't have to grip you like it does. That, that person doesn't have to be strangled, have a stranglehold on you like they do. God never intended for you to live that way. God wants you to be free. That's why God used Samson. Because all Samson was being used for by God at this point was simply to show his own people, you don't have to be under the servitude of the Philistines. I've come to call my people to freedom. Let's close in prayer. God, I, I hope and pray tonight that everyone in this room has an assurance that you have a grip on them. That's important. That's really where it all starts. Because if we don't believe that you truly have a hold of us and our lives, then the rest really doesn't matter. And yet Paul acknowledged to the Philippians that I lay a hold of what Christ has called me to because I know Christ has laid a hold of me. Paul's basically saying, I know God's got me right in his grip. 
and he's not going to let me ever go. And because he will never let me go, Paul said, I can let go of everything else. I can say bye to the past. I can say bye to the abuse. I can say bye to the powers, to the lions, to the hurts. I can say bye to the destructive behavior. I can say bye to it all when I realize for the first time how much God has a grip on my life. God, I'm asking tonight for those in this room that something or someone else besides you has a grip on their life. That tonight would be the first day of the rest of their lives. And that beginning tonight, they would begin to see that grip loosened in their lives. And they would let it begin to go. God, glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.